You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. Good morning, folks. My name is Roger Otero. I'm the associate pastor here at Vineyard Augusta, and I'm honored to be opening up the scriptures with you guys this morning. Um, happy sports ball day. There's a, there's a big game happening, and in case... In case you're wondering who I'm rooting for, and, and I realize like, this is a risk because I could just be alienating a whole lot of you like right at the outset, but I'll tell you who I'm rooting for. I've got a whole lot of money down on the appetizers. Can always get me with a good chicken wing, anything wrapped in bacon. I'm there for it. I'm there for it. Uh, how many of you guys have seen the 1993 movie Free Willy? Yeah, you guys seen this movie? Classic. Um, if, you, if you haven't seen it, the basic plot is it's about this young boy who frees a killer whale from a rundown theme park, right? That's it in a nutshell. They're so excited. Look at them both. Now, the irony behind the scenes of this is that while Willie was freed in the movie, the orca that portrayed him in the movie named Keiko was still in captivity as he had been for 15 years. And this movie hit such a strong emotional chord with the general public that soon after the movie's release, uh, activists began campaigning and working for the release of the actual whale from the movies. Um, And so he was living in an aquarium in Mexico. And at the time, he had a lifespan, a life expectancy of three months. He was not in good health. Things were not looking up for him. So money was raised. They built a huge aquarium on the Oregon coast to which Keiko was moved. And here, his caregivers attempted this daunting task of trying to train Keiko how to be a a wild whale out in the ocean once again. Uh, They had to teach him how to hold his breath for longer because he had just never had to dive very deeply. They had to teach him how to hunt, because he had always been hand-fed frozen fish for most of his life. Human beings had to teach a whale how to be a whale. Um, Now, the good news is that it was working. Uh, Keiko began to thrive, living much longer than his predicted three months. By 1998, five years later, um, after the movie, they were convinced that he was ready to survive in the open ocean. So 19 years after he had been captured from the wild when he was just a young calf, um, he was flown home to his home waters off the coast of Iceland. And there, there's a bay, and they built uh, this floating tank in the bay that would serve as launch point for reintroducing Keiko out into the open ocean. And, And so over and over again, day after day, his trainers would lead him out into the ocean to interact with and hopefully stay with pods of wild orcas. They would track them, find them. And, but time and time again, Keiko would follow them back. He would return back to the familiarity and safety of his tank in the bay. But after four years of this, by the summer of 2002, it, it seemed to have, have worked. One day, the trainers get in their boats and they lead Keiko out into the ocean. And after returning, he wasn't with them. They could still ping a radio signal so they knew he was somewhere, but they could get no visuals on him at all. Like Keiko had finally taken off out into the open ocean. He was, he was finally independent of humans. He, he finally chose whales over people, and he was, he was finally becoming the whale that he had always been created to be. But then, 
A month later, Keiko showed up again, this time off the coast of Norway where he was befriending local fishermen. <laughs> you know? As you do, you find the fishermen, right? Because they're going to hook you up. Now, our, our story, as people trying to follow God, or maybe even not trying to follow God, if you are one of those today, which is, I hope you're open to hearing this, our story is often the same. We often return to the familiar walls of safety and predictability where everything is kind of cornered off and spelled out for us. We'd rather do that than brave the unknown out in the freedom of the open ocean. That feels scary and intimidating. And I think that the, the exasperation that Keiko's trainers probably felt sometimes, must, what they felt must be a lot like the exasperation that the Apostle Paul feels throughout his letter to the Galatian Christians. Why are you guys doing this? I'm trying to lead you out into freedom. Why do you keep coming back? And so what, this is what we've been doing. We're reading through Paul's letter to the Galatians in the series, No Other Gospel. And today I've got a message for you guys called Into the Wild. And what I believe that the Lord wants to say to each of us today is this, is that the invitation of Christ is to leave the safety of domesticated religion for freedom and flourishing. This is always the invitation of Christ, to leave the safety of domesticated religion for freedom and flourishing. Why don't you guys pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that through the scriptures that you can transform us, that you can change our minds, that you can change our hearts, that you can change our lives. And we just say we want to be yielded to that. We lay down our agendas. We lay down the things that we're comfortable with. We lay down the things that we've always felt safe in. And we say, yes, Jesus, we want to follow you out into the wild. So come Holy Spirit and speak to us. Give us ears to hear. I pray that your voice would speak much more loudly than mine today. Amen. 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 So we're up to Galatians chapter three. There's six chapters. We're going to be going for a while. Um, Today, I'm reading to you guys. I think you might, not, you might not care about this. You might want to know. I'm reading today from the New Living Translation. This passage in particular has a few phrases and even whole sentences, frankly, that can be really kind of dense and confusing, even in really good translations that I love, such as the NIV or the English Standard Version, things like that. Um, the NLT, I think, helps us today to kind of um, uh, gain some clarity on some things that otherwise might be rather dense. So here's what Paul's writing to the church. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture does not say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child, and that, of course, means Christ. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. 
but God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement, but God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. amen. Yeah. Now, in, in, in this passage, uh, as I read it, Paul is making kind of three main points. And the first is this. This is kind of in the first big chunk here, is that freedom and flourishing depend on God's promise, not on our performance. It depends on his promise, not on our performance. Uh, and now we got to understand here a little bit, what does he mean? He's using these words back and forth a lot, promise and law promise and law. Um, and we're going to do, do a little bit of Bible study here just to make sure that, that the basics of this kind of make sense to all of us. I'm not going to assume that, that we all have some sort of background knowledge of the Bible and what these words are referring to. Um, if this is a refresher for you, then that's just good. This is helpful. So first, let's talk about the promise because the promise happened first. Uh, this is the promise that Paul's referring to that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. Uh, verse one says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then here's the promise. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Notice the use of this word bless like five times. Now, I think if I was to sum up what this promise means, it's this. The promise is the favor of God, which imparts a flourishing communal life. This is the promise he's making. My favor is going to be upon you, and that is going to have the effect of imparting a flourishing communal life. This wasn't even just a promise to Abram. It was going to go on and on and on. Now, God himself... God himself in the Bible is pictured as a flourishing communal life. Even, even back in Genesis, before this promise, right, when, when God is just creating everything, it says, let us make humans in our image. Let us, plural, make humans in our, plural, image. As the rest of the scriptures play out, it's clear that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were all present at creation. God is a flourishing communal life in and of himself. And so his promise is just to share that communal life with everyone, with all of creation. And, and Abram and his descendants are blessed to be a blessing. They are given this communal life so that that flourishing communal life is then passed on and on and on. The promise would not stop at Abram. The promise would not stop 
at, at his children or even his grandchildren. The promise would not stop at the people in the nation that would eventually become to be known as Israel. The promise would not stop rolling until it is extended to every single human being through the person and victory of Jesus Christ. It's this long-term promise. God's flourishing communal life to everyone, which, good news of good news, that includes you and me. We are promised to have this flourishing communal life through Jesus. So then, fast forward, centuries later, Paul refers to this number 430, after the Hebrews were liberated from slavery in Egypt, the law was then given to Moses at Sinai. And this is Exodus 19. Uh, This is what happens. Um, On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you, fully, if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. All the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord, which I think is funny because like I'm assuming God heard it, but it's great. (laughs) He's just doing his due diligence. You don't want to miss that part. Now, and it goes on in greater detail all the way through chapter 24 of Exodus. So if we have first the promise, which is that the favor of God is going to impart flourishing communal life, here we have the law, which I would say are the rules and regulations that defined Israel's way of doing that communal life. Here's the specifics of then how we do that and what this is going to look like. This was God via his mediator, Moses. God is teaching human beings how to be human again. After 400 years of slavery, where they were dehumanized as a people, they forgot how to be good humans. This is God rehabilitating them. Now, at this point, it, it's, it's interesting to watch if you read the, the story in the scriptures, is that at this point, the idea of obedience, meaning strictly following these rules and regulations, began to play a really significant part in how one experienced that flourishing communal life. Uh, from the time of Abraham, the promise stood as the center of God's relationship with his people. After the exodus, the law became an additional element in that relationship. And what I would say then, the second point that Paul is making, right? If the first point is that freedom and flourishing depend on God's promise, not on our performance, the second point Paul is making in this passage is that the law was an interim rehab facility between the promise and the promised one. The law is like this interim rehabilitation facility between the promise and when Christ would come as the promised one who would fulfill it all. 
Uh, the, the law was crucial. It, it was really important. They couldn't just ignore it. It was a crucial yet temporary measure before Jesus. Uh, it was, the law was like an aquarium, right? Safe walls. Here's, here's where you stay, right? We're going to keep you here. Uh, training. Here's how you be human again. Here's how you become who you were created to be. We know you've forgotten. We'll give you some training wheels. Um, you're hand-fed a regular diet, right? Here's the festivals. Here's the celebrations. Here's the Passover. Here's weekly Sabbath. Here's all of the things. We're going to make sure you're getting fed. We'll just, here it is. There's kindness in that. This is all preparation for the final release out into the promised freedom and flourishing of this communal life that God promised from the get-go. He realized you're not ready for it yet. If I turn you out into the open ocean, you're just going to die. So we'll train you. Now, the law, interestingly enough, uh, eventually extended beyond just chapters 19 through 24 of Exodus to include 613 commandments found in the Torah. Good Jews later on kept reading the Torah and they kept adding commandments, adding commandments. 613. Like, which means, like, if, if you as a good Jew wanted to remain a member of God's family in good standing, you would not only have to memorize all 613, but you would have to actually do them or not do them as the case may be. You would have to actually live them out. And these are interesting if you read through them all. Just Google like 613 commands in the Torah. Like you'll find some really great stuff. Uh, some of them are still quite helpful, I think, if you think about just how to live as a good human being. Now, some were religious commandments, right? Very much related to religious practices they would do or beliefs they would have. So it would say things like, have no other gods besides Yahweh. Um, teach Torah to your children. Don't do witchcraft, right? Things like that. They're just kind of like, well, all right, good call. Um, some were more like moral commandments that had direct um, implications for that communal life and how you got along or didn't get along with different people, what might cause harm to other people. Um, these are things like love your neighbor as yourself, Right? And again, a lot of these are ones that even non-religious people would agree. This is a good moral way to live as a human. Uh, don't break oaths or vows, right? Be a person of your word. If you say something, mean it. Um, don't eat maggots. You know, the kind of things that you don't think, <laughs> the kind of things you don't think you're going to have to tell somebody, but at some point it's like, we should write this one down. All the parents in the room are like, yeah. All those conversations you don't think you're ever going to have to have, but you do, right? So don't eat the maggots. I, I know they're enticing, but just don't. Um, some, of them, uh, some of them became what we might call more of like cultural identity marker commandments, right? Um, a lot of times we use this language of cultural identity markers. Things like don't trim your beard. Well, how many of you dudes shaved today? I did, so I'm out, right? Um, don't eat leaven during Passover. How many of you guys ate some like bread during Passover? Right? Probably did. Uh, circumcise, every, circumcise every male on the eighth day. I just had to throw that one in just because we're saying circumcise every week. 
Now that became a super important cultural identity marker. This is at the, this is at the crux of the problem going on in Galatia that Paul's um, addressing here. Is that not only did they have all of these laws and pull them from Torah and be like, well, if they're in Torah, they must be important, but they also began to impose them on other people saying, you have to do this. You have to do this. Even if you're a Gentile, if you're following Christ, still that's great. You still have to be a good Jew in all of these 613 ways. Now, don't misunderstand this. Don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand Paul. All of this is still very good. This was still God's kindness. This was God's way of rehabilitating and retraining his people how to live as good human beings after being dehumanized in slavery. Thank you, right? We need this. What happened, though, over time is that I will bless you found increasing tension with we will do everything the Lord has said. There's a lot of tension that gets created in these. It it exists in the Old Testament, and this is where we find Paul in the New Testament going, whoa, there's there's some, some friction going on here that we need to resolve. Over time, performance began to trump the promise as a means of experiencing this free and flourishing life of God. The, the law came to carry more weight than the original promise did. It came to matter a whole lot more how you kept all of the rules rather than what God had promised. Paul's argument is that since the promise came first, it takes precedence over the law. But this tension between I will bless you and we will do everything the Lord had said had the added effect of causing God's people to miss this point, which is the third point that Paul makes. It's very related to the first. They miss this point that God's ultimate goal is to impart his flourishing communal life. That's the goal of everything. And Paul says this in verse 21. He says, if the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. If. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. This is the question. What actually gives us new life? And let's not point fingers at, at good like first century Jews, right? Let's, let's consider ourselves for a moment. What actually gives us new life? Because just like them, we have our tendency to tack on a whole lot of additional extra things some of which might even be good moral things to add on. Some might be just like cultural identity markers, which cultural identity markers in and of themselves are not bad, right? Your, your political party is, a, is a, a cultural identity marker, and that's not wrong in and of itself. Where we get tripped up is when we take things like that, or when we take things like we have a lot of very uh, strong opinions sometimes as Christians over like where you shop right? A lot of strong opinions on like what music you listen to or don't listen to. A lot of strong feelings about, well, what schools you send your kids to and what schools you don't send them to, what books you allow them to read, what books you don't allow them to read, right? We have a lot of cultural expectations on like, well, how many times a week should you go to church and do church event things? And these are not all bad. These are not all like unhelpful. A lot of these can be very life-giving. Where we go wrong is when we, we think that that's how we're going to experience God's flourishing life. We take it a step further into wrongness when we try to impose those on other people, which is what the Galatians were doing. 
Well, we do this, so you have to do this too if you want to be a part of us. And we have God's blessings, which we may not say it, but then that implies, so then you're not going to receive those blessings. What actually gives us life? Flourishing life is not kept, is not found in keeping the law, including our additions to it, but in trusting in the gracious promise of God. Trust, that's it. Flourishing life is not found in the confines of an aquarium, but out in the open ocean where it's all a little bit wild. I wanted, I wanted to share uh, this diagram, reshare this. I think it was in the first week. It might've been the second week. It was early on in the series. Um, this is a diagram. This has been uh, profoundly helpful to me as a believer um, and really applies well to this book of Galatians. Um, this idea of bounded set and centered set. This is actually originally comes from math. Then it was borrowed into like sociological constructs, which is what we're talking about here today. And the question is, is like, well, how are groups formed, Right? What holds groups together? And in the first set, we have a bounded set. The, the whole point in a bounded set is to define who is in and who is out. And the way you do this is by setting up a boundary, right? So like if you're a good first century Jew, you're still trying to keep those 613 laws, right? And as soon as I shave my beard, I'm out, right? I'm clearly on the outside of that bounded set, you know? And maybe some people are like, well, you did this other 612. That's legit. You're still in. But it's a big deal right? The important thing in this becomes who is in, who is out? Are you keeping up with all the norms? Are you voting for the right people? Are you listening to Caleb? You know, are you reading the right books? How many times did you go to church last week? You're in or you're out. And then you get the blessings or you kind of don't, right? Uh, in, in a bounded set though, the idea is not about the boundary, but it's about the center, hence centered set, is that what's important in a group is actually who or what is at the center of it, and, and thereby everybody else around it, their relationship to that center. So if you notice, for us, Jesus is the center, right? We always make a big deal about this. Jesus is at the center. And what's fascinating about this to me is it actually, you might assume that if I am someone that's really, really close to the center, that I might have a lot of blessings of that life, that promise of Abraham, just by being close to Jesus. And maybe somebody who is farther away in the diagram, like they don't get as many of those blessings. What's interesting in this diagram though is it's not about position or, or nearness or proximity, but it's about trajectory, hence all the arrows. I could be really, really close to Jesus, but maybe, maybe my trajectory is just a little bit off, right? I'm not looking at Jesus, I'm looking at Tim, because there he is, <laughs> right? But maybe somebody who's way, way far back is, is focused right on Jesus and they're farther away from him. And maybe there's some inherent blessings I get maybe from being close, but this person under this theory is better off than me because they are like squarely focused on Jesus. Uh, which also, this is a side note, not in my notes. One of my favorite uh, definitions of repentance is recalibration. To sin in Greek means to miss the mark. Like you're shooting an arrow at the center, but you miss a little bit. Well, what do you do if you're missing a little bit? You recalibrate. So the more calibrated and recalibrated we are on Christ the center, the better off we are. The more flourishing life we experience, the more of his promise we inherit here and now. Now here's the question. Which one of those looks more like an aquarium and which one looks more like the open ocean? If you were a whale, where would you want to live? 
if you were a whale. Now, let's keep our imagination caps on for a moment. Let's not just imagine what if you were a whale. What if Paul was a whale? What if Paul was a whale, and he's not writing like letter to the Galatians, but he's writing like letter to the whales at Galatia? There's still like old whale Abraham and old whale Moses, right? Here's what I think. Here's what I think Paul would write. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can drain or alter an oceanic habitat, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his calf. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his calves as if it meant many whales. Rather, it says to his calf. And that, of course, means Christ. This is what I'm trying to say. The ocean God made for Abraham could not be drained 430 years later when God built the aquarium for Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if whaleness could be achieved by living in the aquarium, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then was the aquarium built? It was built alongside the promise to show whales their lost whaleness. But the aquarium was designed to last only until the coming of the calf who was promised. God built his aquarium through marine biologists for Moses, who was God's whale trainer. Now, a trainer is helpful if more than one party must learn to live together. But God, who is one, did not use a trainer when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's aquarium and God's ocean? Absolutely not. If the aquarium could give us new life, we could be made right with God by living in it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of lost whaleness. So if we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Or however whales say that. You and I were never intended to spend our lives in the familiar and temporarily helpful rehab facility of religious observances. We were intended to follow Christ out into the wild. Um, Victor Frankl, anybody know who Victor Frankl is? If you've never read Man's Search for Meaning, highly, highly, highly recommended it. There's a copy sitting on my, my couch back here. Somebody called dibs. Um, he was a Jewish psychiatrist from Austria who, after surviving four Nazi, Nazi concentration camps during World War II, he, after he got out, he continued and expanded his psychiatric work, wrote the book that I just referred to, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, now, I have to admit here, neither Keiko's Aquarium nor the Jewish law are in any way comparable to the, the horrors of a concentration camp, right? They, they, they no way compare to that. That's where this metaphor just breaks down. I'll just say that right at the beginning. However, in his book, the way that Frankel describes his transition from captivity to freedom, from his dehumanization to reformation into full human experience, I find this wonderful. Here's what he writes. One day, 
A few days after the liberation, I walked through the country past flowering meadows for miles and miles toward the market town near the camp. Larks rose to the sky and I could hear their joyous song. There was no one to be seen for miles around. There was nothing but the wide earth and sky and the lark's jubilation and the freedom of space. I stopped, looked around, and up to the sky, and then I went down on my knees. At that moment, there was very little I knew of myself or of the world. I had but one sentence in mind, always the same. I called to the Lord from my narrow prison, and he answered me in the freedom of space. which is from Psalm 118. How long I knelt there and repeated this sentence memory can no longer recall. But I know that on that day, in that hour, my new life started. Step for step, I progressed until I again became a human being. This is the invitation of Christ. I'd like to invite you just for a moment. If it's helpful to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. And just sense for a moment, maybe specific things come to mind, maybe it's more of a feeling. Do you feel more like you're living in an aquarium or more like you're living out in the open ocean? You just kind of name that. Just hold that before the Lord. And then ask yourself this question, in what ways am I remaining in safe religious observances rather than following Jesus out into the wild? In what ways am I remaining in safe religious observances rather than following Jesus out into the wild? Call to the Lord from your narrow prison. Listen for his answer in the freedom of space. Why don't you stand with me?